Have you been zombified by humor, by funny, by laughter? Welcome to the Zombified Podcast, your source for fresh brains. Zombified is a production of Arizona State University and the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. I am your host, Athena Actipus, psychology professor at ASU and chair of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And I am your co-host, Dave Lindbergh Kenrick, media outreach program manager at ASU and brain enthusiast. Yes, we love brains. Yes, and (laughs) humor. Yes, and so um, humor. So, Dave, when you laugh, like if something is funny, do you like say, oh, I'm going to laugh and then you laugh? Or is it just like you laugh and you don't have any control over it? That's a good question. Um, when I when something's like really hilariously funny, I think I just start laughing. Um, yeah. So How about if something is like kind of funny? I think I almost note it sort of like that's funny, like checkbox. So do you ever do like oh ha ha? No. I don't know. I don't know if I'm a big yeah, fake laugh. I, I don't think you do I think that. I, I think I just sort of. I might sort of hmm. nod or smile. Hmm. Like, yeah. yep. All I right. Acknowledge nice it. try. So yes. <laughs> so um, yeah. So in this episode, we're going to talk about laughter, about humor, about funny, about like what funny really is, and some theories about laughter and funniness. And we're going to be talking to, or I'm going to be talking to Tom Wisdom. Sorry, That's right. You couldn't I'm, be there. I'm always, yeah, I miss, I miss everything. <laughs> so, um, uh, so I talked to Tom Wisdom. He is a PhD in psychology, so he's a doctor of psychology. Um, he also is a comedian, so he does like stand up comedy. And his name is Wisdom, which okay. is totally awesome, right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I had to ask him. I, I like literally, he gave a talk here. And then I dragged him into my office afterwards. I'm like, I want to interview you for my podcast. He's like, okay. And so, and so, so he's talking about the science of humor. Yeah, he's talking about uh, how humor works. Um, we talk a little bit about the physiology of laughter too, and what makes laughter voluntary or involuntary. Interesting, because you know, in a way, like laughing is this thing that we don't really understand very well like what what's the point of it what's the function of it and it's an involuntary thing and so yeah that is that, yeah. that makes sense because it's sort of loud and it seems like there's some resource cost to it so it must serve some function right yeah it I seems like so. it yeah huh. interesting and the fact that you know we just i mean when something is really funny it is like you just can't help but laugh right and then laughter, it's also, it can be contagious, right? You start laughing and then someone else starts laughing. Sometimes they don't even know what the joke was, but like the sound of laughter makes people laugh. Now, do you guys laugh. do that in this podcast? Uh, do we make do people laugh? Guys, we should, or just laugh contagiously? I don't know. I mean, I think in general in this podcast, we, we do get a little zombified by laughter because... I don't know. We love brains so much that it's. it's I think right. it's kind of there's well, a little bit of contagion. It's contagious. Yes, to the, that's to right. The too, so. <laughs> but I mean, that's how like so many like sitcoms and stuff work. They have those laugh tracks, right? Oh, the and fake so then ones. You, sure. You laugh even though you know that it's a not for real, but just the sound of laughter zombifies you, and you start laughing. Laughing. That's so. True. So, so should um, we like let's laugh now? Ha 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 ha! ha. Okay, everybody. <laughs> I was just thinking see. we could cut in. Like I could just record laughter? laughs, and you could just even though I'm not there every once in a while, just have your laughter in there. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's pretty good, Dave. But 
<laughs> no, I need to work on it. I think you need to All work right. on it. Well, All right, so uh, let's jump well, right hopefully in. Hopefully, the natural laughter will will work then. Yes, so. yeah. All right, so let's we'll, jump we'll right in. Jump into our episode with Tom Wisdom, psychology PhD and comedian. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do. I'm not trying to be over-analytical. Retracing time to remind myself how ugly this could be. But something else is taking over me. First of all, thank you so much for just being willing to come into my office and let me interview you spontaneously because I came up to you after your talk and said I would like to interview you for my podcast. Yeah, I'm, I'm a person who can talk. So awesome. that's that's all I needed and that's what I got. Awesome. So uh, first of all, your name is Dr. Wisdom, which is totally awesome. Now, is that actually your real name or were you like, I'm going to go and get a doctorate and before I do that, let me change my name? My last name to Wisdom, so I can be Doctor Wisdom. No, it's my real name, and it's it's kind of an albatross. Like my my father's a pastor, ah, in the army. Oh, so he was. I mean, by the time he retired, he's like Reverend Doctor Chaplain Colonel Wisdom. So I feel like I'm not wow. even close to that. Doctor, wow. doc, just Doctor. That's fine. Okay, so I, it is your real name. Yes. Yeah, and so we discovered we have something in common because my name Athena. She's the goddess of wisdom, mm -hmm. which I guess makes me the goddess of you in some weird way. Yes, it's, it's already a weird power dynamic. Uh, yeah, I feel yeah. Like I'm Sorry about that. You somehow, <laughs> you're gonna kick me out of Greek heaven. <laughs> so uh, now, because I just pulled you into my office to do this interview, you basically have no idea what Zombified is or what the podcast is, except for like the two seconds that I spend explaining it before dragging you in here. Right? That's fine. Yeah. Okay. So um, a little bit about Zombified. So we're a podcast. It, um, it's run by ASU and also by this organization, wonderful organization called the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance, Okay, which is a very interdisciplinary group that is dedicated to reducing the global burden of zombification, among other things. Now, okay. what is zombification? You might ask. Right? I might. You might ask. So our whole idea of zombification um, is... Essentially, anytime you have an entity that is affecting another entity's behavior, manipulating their behavior, controlling it in one okay. way or another. So it's kind of everything from parasitism, like the crazy zombie ants, mm -hmm. right? The fungus that gets into their brains and yeah. makes them cordyceps, do exactly yeah. cordyceps fungus. So everything from that to thinking about, you know, how do humans manipulate each other in their relationships mm -hmm. or in business or how do our interactions with technology take over our brain and, mm -hmm. uh, or how does advertising influence us so sure. all of these things that can influence our behavior so uh one of our you know sort of the big influences on the sort of evolutionary side is the richard dawkins extended phenotype idea mm -hmm. i don't know if you I'm generally familiar. Richard yeah. Dawkins, um, nerd like me, but uh, you know this whole idea that there can be genes or really like any kind of replicator that it influences not just 
its own body, but also the bodies of other entities and makes them do stuff that can help to make the replicator do better. Yes. Yeah. So you're all about personal autonomy. This is a libertarian podcast. Well, I don't, well we are about autonomy. Uh, we, there is no like political bent. Real. I mean, I, I think we should be questioning like what, uh, what things are affecting us and figuring out if there are things that are affecting our autonomy. But I definitely don't actually consider myself a libertarian. So, um, yeah, in fact, I think the zombie apocalypse is a totally bipartisan issue, honestly. <laughs> so really, uh, so, and that's actually part of why I really like doing this podcast is because everyone can kind of get behind this idea that we shouldn't be zombified and that sure. maybe we should be, you know, thinking about how we can leverage our autonomy, get back in the driver's seat to avoid the apocalypse. Yeah. What's the opposite of a zombie? Like a totally autonomous entity that has no influences. I mean, that's kind of bad too, right? If yeah. you're just like cut off from everything. Yeah. It's kind of going back to, oh, what is it, Daniel Dennett's idea of free will is that you have to have influences and information to exercise your will. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting kind of middle ground to think about. Where is freedom at? Yeah, right, right. And also being affected by your outside world is not necessarily a bad thing, mm -hmm. right? You're being influenced by those around you, maybe to cooperate more or to care about people or to do something that's in your own best interest. All of those things maybe in a way you're being zombified but they could also be good things so yeah so zombification complex multifaceted topic yeah it sounds like a nice uh flagpole to raise up whatever issue you want to put yeah yeah and so you dr wisdom what is your first name may i ask tom can i call you tom sure okay tom so tom you exist in this really cool in between space where you are both trained as an academic psychologist, is that right? Mm -hmm. And you are a stand-up comedian at the yeah. same time. Yeah. So how do you how did you get to that and and why are you in in the middle there? Like and what is that like? Um, I think it's just I have a really hard time sitting still. I have a, a strong, I mean if I want to put this academic, I have a strong novelty bias. Mm, okay. So that new things, different things, changes and uh, developments and stuff are more attractive, more interesting to me than kind of building up something stable. Yeah, that's I, don't, just I like, don't know anything about that. That's just a personal <laughs> difference, I think. Like some people yeah. go one way, yeah, yeah, some yeah. people down the middle. For me, it's it's a strong bias toward new, different things and mm -hmm. trying to fit things together that might not fit together. Right. A, a lot of times it doesn't work, but this is something I'm trying out, trying to make these things work as far as they can with, with trying to use humor to make science better. That's really cool. So can I ask you some questions just about humor and like what of it course, is? And yeah. so because the podcast is zombified, the questions that like I really like to ask are about things like, you know, why does this thing affect us? Mm -hmm. Both the evolutionary reasons and sort of the mechanistic, mechanistic reasons. Mm -hmm. So in terms of humor and jokes and like things being funny like why is it that that influences us you know why are we affected by 
someone telling a joke. So with the caveat that I haven't done any of this research myself, this is not my field. I, I studied social learning, how people learn from each other mm. and, and to imitate and, and re-innovate and stuff like that. So rather than learning from a book or a teacher, how do you learn from watching other people do mm. things? But, um, uh, but can I just totally interrupt you already? Sure. Which is in terms of social learning, is humor important for learning from others? Oh, um, yeah, a million percent, if you'll allow that very numerical uh, <laughs> a million useful, percent. <laughs> very useful numerical yes, we're quantitative psychologists not yes um i think so much uh, so the the big idea of the origin of humor is that it's some sort of uh display to indicate that you're not presenting a threat so like mm. when animals uh play have play interactions there that could be misconstrued as fighting so the ideas that various researchers have had is that these sort of uh, facial displays of smiles and um, uh, the kind of vocalization that sounds like laughter when other animals do it, that we also do, is evolved from a common signal to indicate that whatever this interaction is, I'm not actually trying to uh, hurt or uh, dominate or whatever. This is outside of the, the com competitive and um, survival hmm. so mechanisms. It's kind of like... Uh signal that comes before an interaction to clarify that it's like it's not about dominating or about trying yeah, could to be before during after i mean okay. again this is not like my specialty but yeah. from what i've read and and you know watched documentaries on and stuff mm -hmm. like that um the origins of it as people think of it is that it, it came from this idea that in situations of ambiguity where a signal could be uh perceived as a threat you have a this kind of counter signal that makes sure it's the other way interesting so that uh things misunderstandings don't escalate into dangerous uh, situations. And then the, the, the theory presented by uh, Matthew Hurley, Daniel Dennett, and Reginald Adams in their book Inside Jokes is that this, this gen so that, that signal is a correction, right? It's a, you, if, if some situation is happening, if you're being you know, stepped on or whatever, mm -hmm. or, you know, wrestling gets too rough, you might be tempted to predict the next thing is you have to defend yourself because you might get hurt or killed. So um, their idea in this book is that that kind of prediction is happening all the time. People and pretty much any, any conscious-ish being has this kind of real-time prediction happening about the world and your internal model of the world all the time. And so you want to avoid dangerous situations and bad situations and go toward good ones. And But obviously, if you're doing this in real time with very noisy information, you're going to be wrong a fair amount of the time. And they're, as I understand it, they're... they're theory overall is that the, the experience of humor is when you see some sort of incongruity or mistake in the prediction that you made in your in your world model mm -hmm. that is currently not threatening or or terrible in some way and you get enjoyment from noticing that hmm. and that's, so... what, that's what they I think they refer to as basic humor or basic mirth which means that you've you avoided some sort of possible mistake and just that noticing gives pleasure because we've that and that has evolved um, from these earlier more hmm. instinctual things. Um, I mean, that's a dangerous word to use, but you get what yeah. I mean. So one of the funniest things that has ever happened to me was we had a lab retreat and in the evening we were all sitting around the campfire and this was like on the edge of national forest land. And so it was, you know, kind of out there and you could hear coyotes and occasionally, you know, other animals and owls and stuff. So we're sitting around the campfire and 
there is some rustling coming from one, you know, the little area. And one person gets up to go and look and sees that there are glowing eyes and gets a little bit freaked out. Their boyfriend goes up and says, there's thousands of them. And everybody starts to freak out. <laughs> and it turns out in the end, it was just one of them. And it was my friend's dog, who's a, a beagle that's like about a foot tall, who's like the sweetest dog ever. But everybody had mistaken that there was some threat that was out there. But it was so, I mean, it's so funny. And like remembering it now, it's still like we all just laugh every time it comes up. Is that mm -hmm. an example yeah, yeah. of this? And it's, it's a really good example of what, I mean, when people use the phrase, you kind of had to be there. So oh, you totally had to I, be there, I right? understand the situation. You'll notice I didn't laugh. That right, yeah, I was like, it's somehow really, like, I didn't do a good job telling this one. No, no, exactly. <laughs> it's not that it's not funny. It's that is that humor is an experience of your internal kind of situation, your internal model of what's happening and what's about to happen. Yeah. I didn't have all the, the important stuff, which is the, the experience leading up to that, the darkness and isolation, yeah. the, you know, suddenly noticing you don't have a bunch of, you know, weaponry on hand, which bad job on you being on this in, in all this zombie world. You didn't have your, you know, katana yeah, with you or something. Right, right. Um, and your your situation, your prediction about what's about to happen gets higher and higher in tension as you think you're in danger. Mm -hmm. And that suddenly is released with a realization that the same stimuli, the same things you think you perceive could be applicable to actual danger or to your your buddy, the beagle, just right. want, wanting to some, some pets. You yeah, know? right, right. And it's not that it's... There's no, there's no situation that is funny or isn't funny. It's just that I didn't have that internal state that you had when you experienced mm -hmm. that. So that when you have this sort of mismatch into what you think is happening in the world and you get new information and it's actually less threatening, maybe that's time yeah. when you're really like, oh, this is hilarious. Yeah, this, that seems like it would be yeah. kind of down the middle of, of mm -hmm. this canonical idea of what mm -hmm. humor is or is for or how it, how it develops. Okay, so... In that kind of idea of what humor is, it's really for the benefit of the organism who is having that response, right, of the funniness of the thing. Yes. It's like helping you re-update your representation of the world. Yes, as well as reinforcing the the activity of checking your models. Right? Okay. So it's it's not just that this feels good right now. It's that you can look forward to that good feeling in the future if you keep on watching out for these incongruities and possible uh -huh. mistakes. Uh -huh. So... The, the idea in this book, Inside Jokes, which is, again, not mine, I'm just, I've just read it and been really interested yeah. in it, is that you kind of need this bribe because it's really a, a taxing activity to keep on checking through what your beliefs and understandings are and looking for problems mm -hmm. because you have millions of them. Mm -hmm. But the one that's currently active uh -huh. that you can activate by telling a joke you know, or seeing a meme or, or being in some situation, all those things are just bringing... Uh, making ideas active, making some some thought patterns or models, in, internal models of, of reality, making them active, and then finding some flaw or some mm -hmm. uh, incongruity in them. Yeah, and so when you have this response that you just can't help but laugh at something hilarious, you're kind of like being overtaken yeah. by that laughter in these kinds of situations, that is, the theory is it's providing a a fitness benefit by somehow just helping to shift your representations about the world. Yeah, I think, yeah. So the experience, the internal experience, the the yeah. pleasure of mirth, I think yeah. has that function. 
Um, I'm not sure if anyone has really nailed it's it's maybe like like hiccuping or yawning or something like that. The reason that that your lungs are involved, I don't think anyone really yeah. has nailed down a, a cause for that. But I think the theories are more or less along the lines of uh, it's uh, you know, resumes breathing if you were tense and not breathing, you know, you, if you're holding your breath, yeah. but also uh, to signal to others because humans are, what do they call, ob obligatorily social animals. We we really can't survive without other humans around in some mm -hmm. way yeah. um, for extended periods of time. So it's a way of signaling, not just that you're experiencing this, but that we can all relax yeah. or we can all share the experience mm -hmm. and understand the flaw in, hmm. you know, maybe our shared model of some situation uh -huh. and enjoy the upgrade to our cool new accurate models of reality, uh -huh. but also the pleasure of it as well. Huh. So could it be that part of why that laughter response is uh, outward expression that other people can hear and process is so that you're simultaneously updating everybody's representation of reality? I don't know if it has that hard of an edge to it, but I think I think people would generally agree that's one of the things that can happen. Yeah. Not it, that it has to or always will, but... Um, maybe that, a way to get common knowledge, right? It's like if you're laughing and everybody's laughing about something, mm -hmm. then I don't know, it, it seems to me it feels sort of like that helps to adjust multiple yeah. people's... Or at least signal that you might need to catch up with the situation, mm. right? I'm sure you've... You've right. seen people, or you actually have yourself, laughed when you didn't know it was funny yet. Right, but then you know you need to figure something out. Right, so yeah. that's a possible signal, too. I don't, Again, I don't want to make any strong predictions here. It's not yeah. my field. But that I, makes yeah. general, reasonable sense. Yeah, well, we can speculate wildly on this yeah. podcast, so. And it's, yeah. it's interesting to note that um, the that physical proximity actually helps. So comedy clubs do this on purpose. They'll put seats and tables mm. packed in really close to each other and to the stage to create this... Uh, like literal physical proximity that makes laughter happen much more reliably. They'll put lower ceilings. They'll focus the room so the laughter bounces back. Interesting. Toward, so the audience can hear the audience, mm -hmm. which is strange. There, there are, um, I mean, I again, not research exactly, but many anecdotes of just rooms that were set up wrong for comedy, huh. either because the space echoed too much so the, the wording wasn't clear or the, the seats were too far spaced out mm -hmm. or there was weird, you know, kind of physical barriers in the, in how the room was set up, you know, like tiers of seating or whatever. Uh -huh. And it, people who are telling very reliable, good jokes that they loved that just fell flat because of, there wasn't this sort of physical social component of people nearby me are mm -hmm. laughing. So it's easier to laugh yeah. because it, when you laugh, you're, you're giving a signal about your internal state, which right. is a little bit vulnerable, right? Yeah, well, they literally didn't resonate. Yeah, yeah. Right? Often, it's interesting that we use that language even of resonating. Sure, it's a phenomenon that, that fits a lot of situations yeah. because things that are moving together are have a lot of things in common, right? Yeah, yeah. But uh, anyways. All right, so, so we've sort of talked about the individual side of the humor, right? So as an individual, it can maybe help you update your representations. The social side, maybe it can help update everybody's representations or make some people know that they need to catch up to yeah. where everyone else is at. Um, what about the side of humor that, you know, could, could you use humor? Do people use humor and jokes to manipulate other people for things that aren't in their benefit? You know, it can, can it be used as like a dark art is the question. Uh, of course. I think any, any tool is also a weapon. If you, if you have the, the certain intentions in mind, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, I've seen people use jokes to rile people up in very dark ways, right? Like hmm. um, you could like things like, um, you know, I, I want to say hashtag not all 4chan, but you know, mm. 4chan is is known kind of as this place where these kind of this this gross stew of of bad ideas and uh, poorly. Well, I don't know. I, I don't want to make a strong statement about this because it's not my world. But yeah. many of the things that I associate with 4chan because they became famous were famous for being, you know, poorly timed bad taste, intentionally yeah. aggressive and mean to marginalized groups already right. um, in service of the lulls, right? There's yeah. no there's no higher goal than making the people around me laugh. Mm. But that does, uh, it doesn't just make people laugh. There's like an affiliative kind of effect where it's not just that I laugh at that, is I can see other people laughing at this. We're in this together. We agree with each other. Mm. So you, um, mm. again, not to go too far afield, but yeah. the, the idea of a quorum effect Hmm. Like that, you know, everything from bacteria on up uses. Right. If there's enough of us here, we can do bigger things than we would have otherwise. And this has hmm. been used in, you know, in in weaponized ways. Memes right. and jokes have been used to motivate people to either just at the low end, like not care about someone, to make them only the object of fun as opposed to being a subject on their own, right. to, to just legitimizing terrible behavior. Wow. So in a way, this sort of, this social signal of laughter, if the way that it's getting sort of used is by making fun of outgroups in one way or another mm -hmm. to sort of establish in-group camaraderie, then that can sure. get really problematic. Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the same things that establish, you know, in-group loyalty and good feelings have the mere image of establishing a boundary between you and other people. Hmm. Or between your people and those people. Hmm. So there's nothing nothing wrong with establishing, you know, inside jokes or common reference points or something like that. But they can be, you know, used more intentionally to establish a boundary and in ways that are, you know, pretty pretty negative overall, I'd say. Yeah, that's really interesting. So so that's potentially one side where jokes can get used in a in a way that's manipulative and or not in the yeah. interests of, of certain parties sort of yeah. use as a dark art. Would you say in those situations or in in other situations, is it ever the case that the person who is experiencing the humor or enjoying the joke is themselves sort of the target of manipulation? Of course, yeah. Uh, at, at the In the simplest mode, you can think of like... Uh, a comedian doing crowd work and roasting someone in the front row. Just like it can be completely unprovoked just because the comedian runs out of things to talk about. Or maybe that's their whole thing. Like there's some comedians who just that's their hmm. their main thing. They roast people and people go for that reason because they don't mind it. Right. So you can be the butt of a joke and love it. Mm. That's some people are into that. It's fine. Um, but it can also be, you know, hey, everyone look at this person and hate them. Right. Yeah. It never at least so far, hasn't really been like a political tool that you can point to one thing and say like, oh, this is the dark side or whatever. But you see it all the time. It's just mm -hmm. an easy thing to go for. If you're struggling on stage or in some situation, you can make a joke about those people hmm. and kind of if it can get people on your side in a way that is not, that makes the other side, you know, it makes it a, a gross situation. Yeah. So how is technology changing the way that humor works or, or is it i mean is it 
the sort of the same general psychology and just in a slightly new environment? Or is there something qualitatively different about how humor is working socially and emotionally, given our interconnectedness now and the ability people have to connect online and find groups who have similarities to them and identify out groups and, and all of that. Do, do you see it as, as changing the landscape of humor? Um, it maybe is changing the effects of, of what activity might have been already gone or going on anyway. Um, I definitely have to issue the caveat again. This is not something that I've studied in depth. Mm-hmm. So I am talking from a, a general familiarity with some of these topics. But I don't think jokes have changed for sure. If anything, that's like the, the actual jokes the, the themselves one at a time. Of course, that has to change all the time. If you tell a joke twice, the same audience, the second one, the second time is not going to be as fun for anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so the actual jokes, of course, have to change constantly. But the general topics that you talk about are just any, you know, as people often say, like comedy is made from tragedy plus time. And the time part is kind of optional, depending on the audience, right? Hmm. When people say too soon. Well, some people don't say that, right? Hmm. So it's this discomfort with failure and misery and and hardship and difficulty that makes humor possible because you can see the, going, going back to this original hmm. model, you can see that there's some gap between what you predicted or hoped for because most people hope for good things to happen mm-hmm. and what actually happened in that gap, that's where the humor can happen. Mm. So I think that's, that's universal constant. I don't think anything about that has changed or probably will change. Mm-hmm. But um, I, again, I'm not deeply involved with the study of technology in society, so I can't say much, but the way I see things. Yeah. Just as a comic, what's yeah, your. So like I'm a, I'm a comedian. So I have a ton of Facebook friends who are uh-huh. comedians who are, constantly issuing hot takes on the issues of the day or just making silly wordplay jokes. And you can kind of see those things mm-hmm. change. Some certain things become hack and like you're making a joke about that. You get the feedback, you get zero likes on your, on your mm. stats or only that one guy who hmm. likes everything. Hmm. Um, but on the other side of that, if you get a bunch of likes for something that you thought was just a tossed off joke, you're like, Oh, I should do more of this. You know, that feedback helps. Interesting. And the feedback happens no matter what the, I think it feels probably the same, no matter what the context or group is. If you're like, if whatever your expectation is, if it's more than that, you're going to probably want to do more of that thing. If it gets not what you want, you're going to continue under your own intrinsic motivation. If you just like talking about those things, you can continue to see these, these jokes and things, you're going to point them out. But the groups in which that feedback happens can don't have to be local anymore. Mm-hmm. And many, many people have talked about the, the network effects on culture from the internet because you can find your people. I've used right. that phrase in, in invisible quotes here, but yeah. because you can you can define a social group just by some silly idea you have. And I use silly again in quotes, yeah. meaning, uh, you know, toxic or terrible or just right. a random hobby. And so mm-hmm. whatever feedback, whatever reinforcement you get will tend to guide your behavior no matter who it is, probably. Right, right. So, now you can find people who share your worldviews, no matter how offensive they might be to other groups, right? And because you're literally not hearing other from anyone else, mm-hmm. like if depending how closed your network is, right? You don't have anyone making the mm-hmm. little angry. Yeah, you response. have a, an echo chamber where That's one of what those you say does yeah. resonate, exactly. right? Yeah. <laughs> so even if it's something that might not with a broader mm-hmm. audience of people, yeah, because yeah. you. 
everybody wants that reinforcement to be like thought of as as mm-hmm. cool and smart and and uh, capable and wherever you can get it you'll get it yeah. and i think that can be obviously turned to to bad ends right intentionally or unintentionally yeah. you just it's it's kind of a a gradient you go up right mm-hmm. you want to go toward the stuff that makes you feel good so you do it and you're not necessarily paying attention to the context or what other bad consequences there might be yeah so um let's talk about the other side of humor a little bit which is the creation of humor you know making jokes so evolutionarily speaking we talked about why we might find things funny right there Mm -hmm. could be an evolutionary benefit from that why do we make jokes though like why produce a joke what's the evolutionary reasoning behind that or is there a as with with any evolutionary reasoning i mean we're we're kind of making stuff up from limited evidence, but some of the stories hang together better than others. Um, But I think the major ones are, um, you know, building off the idea of basic humor, basic mirth, these kind of odd situations. You go, huh, you know, to one where you laugh, where you lull. Um, Mm -hmm. You can notice those things and try to make them happen artificially. So like there's this idea of supernormal stimuli, which I, I've rudely forgotten the name of the researcher who coined the term, but it's like if you if you show a, a bee a, a, a typical flower that it's used to seeing, it has a certain color in its in its range of mm-hmm. vision and so forth. It'll go toward it, and then in many cases you can make just a bigger, brighter version of that, and they'll be many times stronger. Mm-hmm. Sort of a sensory bias. Likely, likely to yeah. It's just yeah. A, it's a open-ended sensory bias. You can make it as big and as orange as you want, and more and more bees will more and more often go toward it. So this explains a lot of advertising. Yeah. You're right. trying to, to concentrate some experience into something that is not found in nature. The mm-hmm. beer commercial experience is like the, the most obvious one right. that comes to mind. Like, oh, or the soda, whatever it is. It's like, yeah, I, I am the kind of person who has just a bunch of friends who have a spontaneous party and dance around. Like, Yeah, that's you, me. <laughs> and you go toward that. And the most important part that you go toward is buying the thing. Right. And so that's that's like a textbook example of like this. Yeah. So back to why do we make jokes? Why do we make jokes? So the, uh, there's many theories about that. Um, a lot of them center around like social status. You know, the okay. person who, uh, it's, which is strange in practice because actual comedians are often of low status in mm-hmm. on many different, you know, metrics. Hmm. Um, one of the most common jokes from comedians is how poor and what losers they are, right? It's just a very <laughs> typical kind of joke topic for comedians. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is often intentional to not try to be big timing the audience members. If you assert that you're of high status, people are like, okay, prove it. Whereas mm-hmm. if you assert that you're low status, they can see there's lots of things that they can project from their own experience onto yours and get it more easily. Okay. So you're not likely to, uh, strangely enough, you're not likely to get people to laugh by asserting high status, but you can gain a certain kind of status by uh, using jokes that rely on low status. It's a kind of That's contradictory thing. But I think most people who do comedy on a consistent, you know, long-term basis, just like have it, an itch to do it, have an urge to do it. Often, mm. you know, depending who you ask, it's very, uh, a wide range of experiences, but some people do just feel not good and this makes them feel good. I mean, mm-hmm. I've certainly experienced that. If I'm not feeling good, but I have a good set, the rest of the day is great. 
maybe I start over again the next day, but it's still like, all right, I can do stuff. I'm good at things I'm capable and, you know, whatever, whatever the actual effects are, the feeling is there. Yeah. So it provides some emotional benefit of some. Oh, yes. Of a very specific kind. I mean, they can make people laugh. Yeah. I don't want to, I can't, I don't want to say anything definite about like the neuroendocrinology of it or whatever, but like, you know, that, that squirt of, of folk psychology dopamine that you just, Mm -hmm. you feel good immediately in a very unambiguous way. Hmm. And it's, it's kind of addictive. So it sounds like you're zombified by doing comedy. Yeah. Which is weird because I'm trying to control people in a certain way, get them to do what I want, but that is controlling me too. It's, very confusing. So there's like a collective zombification dynamic happening with comedy. Yes. And with, with the result that I think many, maybe most comedians don't know why they're doing what they're doing. They couldn't really explain it. Hmm. But it's one of the most common questions is like, why do you do it? How did you get started doing this? Why do you do this? What, what keeps you going? And I think people have, you know, from interviews I've heard or read and from thinking about it from my own experience, it's like, I don't really know. Hmm. And it goes up and down. Sometimes I don't feel like it. Sometimes it's like, oh, I thought of something today. I got to go try this out. Mm. Um, so it's kind of like very personal research, you know, like mm. are my thoughts interesting or funny? Can I, you know, survive based on this? And the answer most of the time is no, just because most things are not good mm. because the, you know, the goalposts move all the time. Yeah. Yeah. But um, you can certainly imagine how that process could keep you going. That kind of random, semi-random reinforcement that you can, there's a little bit of skill, a lot of luck, but when it pays off, it pays off in a way that makes you motivated to try it again. Yeah, cool. So sounds like there's some element of it that's just like almost a feeling of efficacy, right? If you can make people laugh, yeah. you can get that done at least. Yeah, and that feels efficacy. Good. I don't think most comedians would use that word, but uh-huh. uh, yeah, I am, I am effective at what I'm doing. I'm capable. I'm competent at something. Hmm. So it's, it's a very... If, if you can do it, it's an easy way to get that feeling. Mm-hmm. Easy is not the right word, but it's a it's a it's some kind of consistent way because there is sort of a culture built around people going up and talking to strangers through a microphone and getting that response or not. So it yeah. can it can feel like, oh, yeah, I just keep doing this. And and mm-hmm. and steps five through 100 unclear, but it's going to be great. Right, right. So to get back. Sorry, I keep coming back to evolution because I I love evolution. From an evolutionary perspective, making people laugh, is that associated at all, you think, with mating motives, even if it's not consciously? Like, do people make people laugh to look attractive to the opposite sex? Uh, A million percent, absolutely. So I didn't catch her last name, Erica. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sure you know her. She's doing research on the association between humor and, you know, mating status, mating attractiveness or whatever. And I am not involved in that research, but I totally I've seen. I mean, actually, like you're in a bar or a restaurant and you can see what is obviously a first date that is not going well. The first sign is that no one's laughing. They don't seem to be having fun. Mm-hmm. And. And, and vice versa. If it doesn't even need to be a first date, right? Sure, yeah. You could, it's, it's year 21 of <laughs> right, the marriage. Exactly. And everyone's, they've heard all of their jokes. It could and be a very done. bad anniversary date. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> woo. Um, but someone live tweeting it, very funny. 
Have you done that? No. Okay. Good <laughs> but I do absolutely subscribe. Um, but also, like, I don't know, anyone, if if you if you are like on a date or just in a in a situation, if you make someone laugh, it's just like, uh-huh. Cause it's not just that like I am good. It's like, oh, they're paying attention. Whatever it is that I'm I'm saying they find not just interesting, but I mean no one's doing this, doing this explicitly, but evolutionary helpful, right? They find, they see that thing too. And I, I found a solution to this funny, awkward situation or whatever it was mm. so that it's like a pretty unambiguous signal that things are going well. Mm. Usually are there, uh, can't any... see why people do it on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. So are there any do's and don'ts for humor on dates? Whoa. For I think we're just climbing the ladder listeners? of my incompetence here. Like, <laughs> <laughs> further and further away from what I actually have any any, any big in. mistakes you've made. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I mean, I, well, again, going back to, to yeah. comedy, you hear one of the one of the big topics of stand up comedy is dates that went bad or dating in general, how dating can mm. go bad. And so much of them are about someone who made the wrong move of of the conversation. Like they mm. they it's either someone saying and then this person tried to start talking about the Civil War all the time and you know, like wherever it goes from there, it's not a good start. Right. And, um, or they'll, they'll make a joke that's obviously meant to, and like you hear people tell stories about like Uber drivers or cab drivers doing this too. Like an obvious, like a racist joke that the whole point is like, Hey, we get this right. We're together on yeah. about those guys. They, they're bad. Right. And, uh, often people in that situation who are trying to make those jokes don't notice when it bombs uh -huh. because they're not trying to make a, joke for for creative humor purposes they're trying to get people together and so like if you're dating you're trying to you know literally get together and if someone doesn't respond to that you're like well that didn't work but uh, whatever my goal remains the same it's not about trying to see what happens it's about trying to make something happen and that's uh -huh. a lot of where these weird stories come from i think just mm. because they're not paying attention to the response so much as just so overly focused on some outcome so so it's almost like if you're trying to make a conversation and use humor, humor, whether it's you know, you're a Uber driver or a Lyft driver, or you're on a date, or you're meeting some new people and you're trying to be funny, mm -hmm. if your joke doesn't really go over, that might not so much be also about whether you're funny or not, but just like misjudging who your audience is and yeah, saying yeah. something that you think is going to establish camaraderie, but actually shows that it doesn't exist that you yeah in a way yeah it's not that they didn't get it it's that you don't get it that you're you're trying to do something that is beside <laughs> yeah. the point of what everyone else is there for so if if your joke bombs it's because you don't get it uh at least you should reevaluate <laughs> okay. where that joke came from uh-huh because like if if i don't know I, I would hesitate to to make any prescriptions here uh-huh but if you want to go back to whatever the evolutionary purpose of humor is, which yeah. is like finding potential problems and understanding a situation better and, and being able to, uh, to see things differently, mm -hmm. then that can just be the goal. Like just mm -hmm. seeing things more clearly and avoiding, you know, harmful mistakes. It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be like a, like a saintly kind of thing. Just mm -hmm. like, well, if we have anything in common is that we don't want to, you know, fall into a manhole or mm -hmm. whatever the other situation is that's equivalent of that. Yeah. And you're probably doing a lot more listening than someone who's just trying to get a one-liner off. Mm -hmm. Because at least these days, I think there's enough comedy in the culture 
that you can hear when someone's telling a joke that is not that's that they've kind of pre-arranged. Yeah. As opposed to being off the cuff or or if someone is relating a joke that happened before, they'll say it like, oh, I heard this joke from this guy. Right. And uh, one of the horror stories is like you're on a date and you start hearing uh, someone trying to tell you a joke. Someone else, a professional comedian joke, as if it happened to them. They're just stealing the joke. Oh. And I've heard about this happening a bunch of times. It's like a common thing, apparently. Someone who's just like not there themselves, but like to borrow that. Wow. But when some when you get caught, it's that's kind of it's got to be horrific. Yeah. Um, you see people do it open mics once in a while, too. They'll just mm. tell and they don't realize they're in a room of people who are trying to become professional comedians. So they're familiar right. with the genre. Yeah. And uh, it's... I think it's it's hopefully more and more obvious when someone is is trying to make a joke to manipulate someone with mm-hmm. with because they're not reacting to the situation or the people involved. They they have like a function in mind. Oh, that's interesting. So maybe one way of kind of detecting if someone is trying to use humor and jokes in a manipulative way is that they're not responding to the context as much. Yeah, I think that makes a lot a lot of sense. Um, I mean, huh. if I, if I do say so myself, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that's, that's like a good, I mean, if they've sort of zombified themselves, if they've attached themselves to some idea of a goal they want from a social situation and they won't be dissuaded from it, that's a pretty good sign that they're trying to do something for, to other people as well. Interesting. It's, hmm. I mean, that makes sense to me. Yeah. I really wish I had any theoretical or experimental basis for any of this, but I, well, yeah. It's, it's hard to sit still and, and do science. Like I have immense admiration for people who can because I, I know plenty of them and I've found out that I'm not one of them. I get along well with a lot of people who do it, but it's it's really hard work yeah. to like nail these things down and be reasonably certain of your conclusions. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think of this idea that part of what people are doing when they're making jokes and being funny is advertising the quality of their brains in some way that they, you know, they're quick thinking, they can pull things together from lots of different places. They can also, you know, be the center of attention. Other people will at least defer to them for the purposes of listening to what they have to say. Do you buy that kind of argument or? I think it makes, yeah, pretty, pretty solid sense. I mean, I've seen it happen. Mm. So it's not like a theoretical idea of like what could be true. I've seen it. I'm sure you've seen it as well. Mm Um, not necessarily like perfectly reliably or, but in certain contexts, it's like easy to see how someone would use, use a joke mm-hmm. and there's manuals about it. You know, there's like public speaking manuals mm-hmm. and, and CEO, like management manuals that tell how to use relating to other people as a way to, you know, manage or manipulate whatever mm-hmm. way you want to turn that. Right. But, um, I, it's not hard to find examples of it in the real world. Uh-huh. And it's not hard to find yourself in that situation. Just yeah. if someone says something, you laugh in spite of yourself. And you're like, I, that's, I don't agree with that at all. But man, they did a trick there that mm-hmm. really got me. Hmm. And it's not necessarily like an intentional thing. But there's structures in your brain, world models that have some overlap. And they tweak it in a way that just works. Yeah. So it seems like there's a interesting relationship between humor being, being funny and having charisma, maybe they're not fully overlapping, but yeah, I think partially. Yeah, I I wouldn't. I've I've seen people who are charismatic who are not very funny. Yeah, not, vice not, versa. 
Have you seen people who are funny but not charismatic? Have you met a comedian before? <laughs> I mean, you're meeting one right now, but like, uh, I, I, I certainly am not terribly charismatic, and I'm not that funny. Um, but you can <laughs> see how you're both funny so and charismatic. My friend uh, Tyler has a joke where uh, he says he wishes he was tall, because that is often mistaken for hot. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good joke because it's a very, you can understand it immediately. You, yeah. you see someone who's tall and you're just like, well, I can see them better. So maybe I should look at them close, you know, like mm. to, maybe I should look at them more. Maybe they're attractive. Mm -hmm. But these things often overlap. Humor and charisma are are together sometimes, but often that's a mistake. You Someone's funny and you mistake them for charismatic. And vice versa. you see people laughing at the jokes of people who are charismatic. When if anyone else told them, you'd be like, what are you talking about? Yeah, right, There's a right. very a strong like delivery and source component right. to when you laugh. It's not yeah. there's no like isolated this is funny in all situations in any form. It's mm -hmm. like really it's I mean I've seen some jokes that get toward that, but that's very hard to do to make a joke that's so context free that you can get people no matter who's delivering it or whatever. Right, right. So yeah. um I think I think humor can help get people, you know, aligned or affiliated with you. It's it's like charisma because it involves understanding your audience and connecting with them and mm -hmm. having some sort of common experience. That all is, you know, affiliative, which is what charisma is for, getting people to follow what you're yeah. where you're leading. And uh but it, obviously it's not one doesn't cause the other. Right, right. So, let's loop back to social learning, right? Cuz so you studied social learning. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious how humor plays a role in people learning from each other. Is that, did you work on that piece of it or is that something that? I didn't, but yeah. one thing we did work on was um, whether if, if someone has the option to imitate what you're doing to learn from you more yeah. or less, um, does it help for them to see the outcome mm. of what you're doing or just um, to see that you have the same intention Hmm. or that you already have a lot in common, so it wouldn't take a lot to change what they're doing to what you're doing. Um, so that all these factors affect so all, decisions in a, they all affect. in a big way. Yeah. yeah. So in our particular experiment, uh, hiding the score information in this game that we had, um, it made people obviously copy more randomly, and they also would use a similarity bias. So they would okay. pick things that were closer to what they already had if they couldn't see score. Hmm. And if you if you think about that, for a second, at least it seemed to us, and talking to some participants, it kind of was borne out that if you're if you're looking at someone who's doing something that's kind of like what you're doing, that has two benefits. First of all, it's not going to take a lot of change to to make that mm -hmm. uh, imitation. You're going to make a lot of effort to adapt to that. Right. And if that change gives you a good outcome, you know exactly where that improvement came from. Right. That so you sense. can make small changes, which are low effort and very uh, high, highly indicative of the outcome. Interesting. So it's, it's, there's the whole, the social learning literature is, is rife with signals that can uh, encourage or discourage imitation. Hmm. Yeah. And so how does it relate to learning then? Like, why, you know, well, do people pay are, are people more likely to imitate people who are funny than people who are not? That, do I know don't know. So going back to yeah. that, this this pretty common uh, joke topic of, you know, I'm so broke. How broke are you? You know, that, yeah. like 
the Rodney Dangerfield kind of thing. Uh-huh. You get no respect. Like making yourself intentionally low status, uh-huh. which is more or less a vehicle for explaining where you went wrong, right? Huh. But not in a TED talk kind of way, not like bullet points, but here is what I intended because we all want good things and here's what happened and here's how it happened. And there's room for all the different forms that humor takes in that gap between intention and result. Hmm. And so you're, I just off the top of my head, I think people like experiencing humor from a person, but they won't necessarily imitate their life choices because Hmm. so much humor is about making mistakes. Right. So So it's a way of like learning from others about mistakes. What you're learning is not let me do things this way, but you're maybe what you're learning is let me not do things this way. (laughs) A huge part of learning is learning what not to do from negative examples. And I wouldn't make any strong statements about about the suitability of of comedians as leaders, Uh but you don't see a lot of them. Uh Uh-huh. So just just statistically in the world, you don't see a lot of very funny and very politically successful mm-hmm. people. But it's really interesting, actually, to turn this whole idea of learning from others upside down in a way and say, well, you know, what does it look like if what you're learning from others is not how to be super, super successful, mm-hmm. but what you're learning is how to avoid mistakes that can be, you know, highly costly or mistakes that are avoidable, um, mistakes that you, you know, you should have been able to not have happen, right? So I I don't know. I mean, maybe in a way we we focus too much on success and how to imitate success and not as much on like learning about how things go wrong. Yeah, I think there's probably like an element of like uh, risk aversion there. Like you 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 want to look out for mistakes so that you don't make them and you know realizing that if there's any uncertainty about something it's good to have information about other people's experience first mm-hmm. um, and if you're trying to follow someone or you're following someone like you know if you're if you haven't helped you if you are an influencer uh, or you're being influenced by someone like that um, mostly you're trying to imit- to emulate them Mm-hmm. And if someone, the weird thing is that we learn so well from mistakes and missteps, but we don't seek that out. Mm-hmm. I think the the big mm-hmm. idea behind this book, Inside Jokes, is that this is this humor isn't the, the evolution of humor was Mother Nature bribing us to somehow enjoy finding mistakes. Maybe attend we, to them more, to process them more. Yeah, to to keep to keep an eye out uh-huh. because it'll be fun when you realize it before it causes harm. Yeah. Because otherwise we would only go toward the things that seem to work. Mm-hmm. And so like, I think there's, there's something to say there about how, how celebrities and influencers uh, and so forth work and how they don't work, what they, what they function poorly as yeah. examples of. Yeah. Um, but I don't have the hmm. cultural or scientific depth to talk about yeah. that, but it's, it's interesting to think, think about that you only, seem to want to follow or imitate things that are apparently flawless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that you don't you don't think of comedians as people to emulate in any other way but their funniness. Mm-hmm. There's no, like, halo effect for, uh-huh. for almost anyone who's really funny. Yeah. There's no, like, if someone is good at something, often that, that halo effect extends to whatever they do. Like, hmm. like, so when, what is it, some physicists just got really into the benefits of vitamin C for some reason. I think it was like Pauly, Pauling, something like that. My memory is terrible. All right, I don't know. But 
because he was such a brilliant physicist, people followed and he believed his own halo effect. His, he was a genius biologist too, just vitamin C. A big, important thing mm -hmm. for everyone. And it didn't bear out, but you can see exactly why someone would say, oh, they're good at that. They're good at everything. Right. But that doesn't seem to be the case for humor. Mm -hmm. Well, to me, that really suggests there's something kind of different about humor and taking the, the social learning idea and sort of bringing that in with this idea about humor helping you to update your mind about things you might have been mistaken about. It just, it seems like, you know, maybe part of what is going on is it's like a, you know, humor and finding things funny is, is not just a bribe for engaging about, you know, updating how you might be wrong about things, but maybe it's also a bribe for engaging in these stories about how things can go very, very wrong so that you, so that you learn mm -hmm. about it and avoid it. Right. Cause uh, I mean, stories about scary things like, People want to avoid stories about things that are Except when they love hearing about murders, which is... Yeah, well, and so and this this is actually like a piece of... Or zombie apocalypses. Exactly. People love stories about that. that. I was just going to go there. So part of why we have this podcast, why we're doing the zombie apocalypse medicine meeting is because the apocalypse and zombies can be super fun, right? It's like imagination. You're thinking about, well, yeah, what would you do if the apocalypse came? Where would you go? Who would you have on your Z team? Mm -hmm. Like that is fun. Why is that fun? I don't really know. Cause it's not fun to like go to a seminar and listen to what is the likelihood that there'll be a disaster like this or a disaster like that, right? That's not fun going to a seminar and hearing about it in dry terms, yeah. but it is fun to like go into imagination world where we're playing and yep. imagining, you know, what the, the future might yeah. be like. And Every aspect kind of, of the reality of it is awful. Right. Including including just a, a specific information about it is just not fun. Everything yeah. about the actual situation would be terrible, but we keep returning to these stories and simulations and ima imagining how it could go. Yeah. And I think there's some sort of like, uh, like competence porn aspect to that, where you're like, yeah, I would survive. Totally. I haven't heard that term competence competence porn but it was it was i i read it in a review of some movie i think it was like matt damon was on mars or something like that and he's you know somehow survives he re recapitulates civilization as a solo dude out there in space uh -huh. <laughs> and and people described it as like not a good movie in a lot of ways but it allowed people to live this fantasy of like i could do this yeah. i could survive this i could make the best of the situation it's in someone's definition of porn as being not really about sex, but about controlling the situation. Hmm. In the same way that food porn isn't about eating the food. You're looking at a blog or something like that, but it's about, I could do that. I could have this kind of capability and expertise to a way to make things hmm. delicious for me and for my friends. And I could just really do it. It's, hmm. it's about, you oh. know, having a sense of control of the situation. Interesting. Hmm. So Again, these are all borrowed ideas. I want to disclaim that. Well, they're very, very fun ones. So uh, speaking of borrowed ideas, you know, in the behavioral ecology literature, there's this idea of um, predator inspection. So you will have organisms who will go up to their predators and poke around and smell near them and watch them. And the question is, why are they doing this? Why are they not just running the fuck away when... 
there is a predator nearby. Mm -hmm. And one of the ideas is that they're doing it to gather information, mm -hmm. right, about what this predator is like so that in the future they'll be more likely to be able to run away and maybe they also sort of know how close they can cut it, right? Like yeah. how. And maybe not that individual in particular, maybe that individual gets eaten, but everyone else can learn from it. So their, their conspecifics can see what are the edges of, you know, the safe zone and don't do that in the future. Yeah, There's well, like this... you can have the social learning, but in terms of like, how is it gonna evolve? It has to, it'll have to be beneficial to the individual doing the predator inspection or their kin. Or... Right. Yeah. For, or, there, or there's just enough noise in in uh, the enough enough of a, a range in any individuals or in, in individual differences of, you know, curiosity and boldness and risk tolerance so that there will be a few percent of individuals that won't survive it. But they'll get a lot of other benefits during their lifetime and they'll reproduce. But at some point they're going to get too close and get eaten. But they've given that benefit to possibly their close uh, kin and offspring and so forth. Right. So there is, yeah. uh, you know, again, I'm telling stories here. It's not hard science, but you can imagine the idea. Yeah. Well, speaking of stories, I have to get us to a question that I always like to ask guests at the end of the show, which is what is the zombie apocalypse of like humor and jokes? Like if you take it to the extreme of like, you know, people being manipulated by humor and jokes like what what is that zombie apocalypse like what would the world be like if we were just so manipulated by humor and jokes would we just be like sitting around in a pile like yeah. laughing contagiously I've got and three references for okay you. all right so uh commander data in star trek the next generation there's an episode where he decides to try to understand humanity by by doing stand-up comedy on the holodeck I don't remember that episode. And he gets I have discouraged to. really quickly. It's like this comedy club simulation, but they laugh at everything, not just that he says, but every like tiny gesture that he does. They're programmed in this very zombie-like way to respond, and he gets quickly discouraged from it. Interesting. But there's also, uh, have you heard of Andrew Dice Clay? Mm -hmm. So he's this 80s comedian who just embodied this character of this like, I'm chain smoking, I'm this guy from the neighborhood, and I'm a real tough guy, whatever. And... Uh, you know, very insensitive. People really just, you know, were tr very triggered by it, but also like a certain, you know, millions of people loved it. And mm -hmm. there's a concert video, like a like a, a performance of his that's, I think it was an H HBO special, where people, he had put out an album or a special or something like that, it'd been on TV, and people showed up to the concert and said the jokes along with him. What? Like said his material all along as if it was a sing-along. That's weird. Like not even karaoke, but singing along as if it was, or talking along with them as if it was a song. And some of it's like little rhymes, you know, twisted nursery rhymes. It's so bad. Um, but people <laughs> would just say things along with them. Huh. And like Steve Martin talks about it in his book about when he had this, this early huge pop of success that he got really bummed out because people would want him to just do the stuff they'd already heard. And he couldn't do new stuff as successfully. He, like people would be upset. If he didn't repeat the things they already knew, and they would have such a great time. People loved it. Huh. But it wasn't creative. It wasn't moving at all. That's interesting. So uh, it's, you can imagine the nightmare from multiple points of view. Like, right. I don't know, like uh, there's, uh, oh, Jeff Dunham. So that puppet comedian who uh -huh. like has a bunch of like kind of racist puppet. It's not, like a lot of people that I know don't think it's particularly funny, but he's hugely paid. He gets, he's made so many millions of dollars 
from these things that are considered by many people to be either like mean or hack or both. Mm -mm. But people love it. And so many, and this is not just the single example, there's many people who are considered hack because they're doing this thing over and over again and getting a big response and getting success from it mm. that people are kind of embittered by because they're like, no, I'm doing the work. I'm trying to do all this new stuff. And who who makes money? This jerk. Yeah, you know? right. Or like uh, like Big Bang Theory or something like that. Mm -hmm. This TV show, it's very huge and is like, you know, culturally appropriating nerds. Yeah. Um, and doing it badly, like misrepresenting things mm -hmm. and doing the same thing, like using these very hack joke structures and particular joke topics people just like oh, they feel they feel like they're in some bizarre zombie situation where people keep responding keep reacting to this thing that's not new or interesting yeah. from their point of view and they feel like they're not in control of the situation that they can't change things so yeah that is that's yeah. the zombie apocalypse well, of humor and i guess we talked about another kind of zombie apocalypse of humor earlier which is these you know echo chambers online where people can kind of get positively reinforced mm -hmm. for really you know, for humor that is offensive to some groups and like creates this, you know, greater and greater kind of polarization, right? Mm -hmm. So that's maybe a bit of a humor apocalypse that we're in right yeah, now. I mean, it, when those things cross over the mainstream, when someone like tries to use that idea or make the joke or or whatever, cross, cross the boundaries of the echo chamber to the wider world, you can see the result in, uh, most of the time, thankfully, it's just awkward. It's just like, oh, you thought that was cool? Thank you for telling us that's the kind of person you are. Yeah. But so thankfully, it doesn't seem to have that kind of carryover broad influence. Yeah. But uh, who knows? Who knows yeah. what could happen? Yeah. So is there any advice that you would give to people about like how to use humor in a non-apocalyptic way? And if you're going to use it in a zombification way to use it in like a positive for mutual benefit kind of zombification? Way? Uh, this is going to be boring. It's not very funny, but like listen Mm. more i think like some of the best like you know best successful comedians that i like are people who are really sharp and in the moment reacting to things that are happening and be able to like call back to things and make it a experience that's in the present rather than just kind of reciting so that but they do a, a lot of listening and some people like um there's a particular comedian uh i'm thinking of i can't remember who um I, his name has escaped me but I've heard stories from other people who worked with him that he'll listen to the whole show just so he can pick up those things later and use them because they'll still be on people's minds. Maybe not in an immediate way, but he can bring them up and use them as material hmm. so, to the point where even if he has to go, you know, use the restroom. He'll say, listen to what this comic is saying and tell me what it was when I come back. Wow. So he doesn't miss anything. Wow. Um, who was it? Uh, anyways, it's it'll yeah. come back to me in about, you know, an hour. Or yeah, so. yeah. Well, this also kind of harkens back to what we were saying earlier about how one way to maybe detect that someone is trying to zombify you with humor is that they're not responding as much to the context. Yeah. Yeah. If they're just sort of using it in a rote way to try to get a yeah. certain response. While if they're really listening, then they're maybe more like co-creating something sure, with yeah. you. Of course, there's like dozens, hundreds, thousands of comedians who would disagree with me and do well by taking the opposite approach. People have very polished material that just works in a lot of places. I'm not saying that's, you know, my, mm. my view is universal, but that's just like, that's what I find the most interesting and fun things. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on sure. Zombified. And yeah. thank you to all of our listeners for listening. 
<laughs> I see what you did there. Very nice. And if the whole world says I will for my shout outs. Thank you so much to the Department of Psychology and to ASU in general for supporting this podcast, especially the Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative, which is a strategic initiative from the President's Office and also the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics. Thank you to my lab, the Actipus Lab, and to the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. If you're looking for us on social media, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram as Zombified Pod. And on Patreon, we're Zombified, and our website is zombified.org. If you want to support us, we are an educational, no ads ever podcast. Uh, We will never ever have ads because we are trying to reduce the global burden of zombification, not increase it. So, yes, consider supporting us. Just $1 a month will help us make more episodes and thank you to all of the brains that help make this podcast tall rom who does our sound neil smith who does our illustrations and lemmy the artist behind our theme song psychological as is my tradition at the end of each episode i share my brains so i have a few things i want to share about humor laughter funniness, fun, that kind of stuff. So the first one is that I was really struck in this episode and in talking with Tom Wisdom about how important paying attention is. And I think this kind of loops back into a lot of our themes for this podcast that you kind of need to have your attention available in order to take advantage of lots of opportunities, not just for kind of being autonomous and not being zombified, but for enjoying your life. So turns out it seems like really you need to have your attention available and be paying attention in order to find things funny and also realize what might be funny to others. So I love that because it really helps kind of bring us back to the present and to our attention so that we can enjoy all the benefits of humor. All right, the other thing I wanted to have a little chat about is 
this idea that um, Tom brings up from the literature about laughter and, you know, the sort of enjoyment that comes from um, sort of the unexpected when there's some sort of mistake or something, um, that, that that can be essentially like a little reward for learning. And to me, there's some really cool implications from this. Like, for example, should we be thinking about making learning more fun in general in education by introducing more surprise, by actually allowing more opportunities to make mistakes or even completely fuck up and then be engaged and interested in learning afterwards? So I'll, I'll give an example. I taught uh, social dance for a while. I was a salsa instructor and I tried to make it fun for me and also for the people who I was teaching. So one of the things I would do when I was teaching is I would have all of the couples go into a circle and um, we did a step called the Cuban Salsa Basic where you sort of step towards your partner on one step and you kind of push off on their hand with yours. So you kind of have like a compression step and then you open up and uh, you're kind of all facing the inside of the circle on the other step. So you're kind of going like together two, three, open two, three, and then you're facing the circle. And I would have people give a high five to the person who was behind them when they did that open step. So it would be like, you know, together two, three, pushing off your partner, and then open two, three, and you would give a high five. So there'd be like a clap. Um, so people love this. And it was super fun for them when they would, you know, open up and they would connect and you'd hear, you know, that high five happen. They loved it, but not as much as they loved it when they messed up and didn't actually hit the other person's hand or they like slipped or it was not on time. People would just laugh and have a riotous good time when they were fucking up. And... I didn't really have much of an explanation for that until this episode with Tom Wisdom about laughter and learning. And, you know, it sounds like having this opportunity to to fail, it like provides this fun moment um, and also increases maybe the motivation to get it right. And so I think maybe we should take this more seriously in education. You know, how we can sort of harness the joy of fucking up and then the fun of trying again in order to make education more engaging for everyone. Thank you for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. Crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural with you.